This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Nightlight has partnered with Fan Roll Dice by Metallic Dice Games to offer an exclusive discount on one of their gorgeous dice sets that we've fallen in love with because of their satisfying weight and, let's just be honest, sparklies not to mention their impeccably constructed dice accessories. In one word, velvet. Visit fanrolldice.com, that's F-A-N-R-O-L-L-D-I-C-E dot com, and use our discount code NIGHTLIGHT for 10% off any new additions to your dice hoard. A portion of your purchase will come back to us and help support our shows. So go to fanrolldice.com with the discount code NIGHTLIGHT to get 10% off of any additions to your dice hoard. Hi, I'm Tanya Thompson, horror writer and creator of Nightlight, the Black Horror Podcast. This week, we go back more than 130 years to hear the work of Charles Chestnut. Charles is often considered the first important Black American novelist, and his collection of short stories, The Conjure Woman, are available for free on Amazon and Project Gutenberg. Links are in the show notes. The son of a free Black man and a free Black woman, he and his family fled North Carolina after the Civil War. He worked as a teacher and an attorney. His story, The Gooford Grapevine, was the first work published by a black writer in the Atlantic Monthly, and although the story refuted the benevolent plantations of popular lore of the day, most readers at the time didn't catch the irony in his words. Charles also wrote a biography of Frederick Douglass, and over time, his work began to more directly challenge social injustice. Our story today, Grey Wolf's Haint, is one of his lesser-known tales in the Conjure Woman collection. The original story is full of the dialect of the time, and at places might have been challenging for listeners today to follow, so I've made a few small adjustments to the language in an attempt to translate it into modern language while maintaining the dialect. Listeners should also note that this piece uses the N-word several times, spoken by a black character, but if you find this offensive, you'll want to skip this story. We'll have another one for you next week. And now, The Grey Wolf's Haint by Charles Chestnut. It was a rainy day at the vineyard. The morning had dawned bright and clear, but the sky had soon clouded, and by nine o'clock there was a light shower, followed by others at brief intervals. By noon, the rain had settled into a dull, steady downpour. The clouds hung low and seemed to grow denser instead of lighter as they discharged their watery burden, and there was now and then a muttering of distant thunder. Outdoor work was suspended, and I spent most of the day at the house, looking over my accounts and bringing up some arrears of correspondence. Towards four o'clock, I went out into the piazza, which was broad and dry, and less gloomy than the interior of the house, and composed myself for a quiet smoke. I had lit my cigar and opened the volume I was reading at that time, when my wife, whom I had left dozing on a lounge, came out and took a rocking chair near me. I wish you would talk to me or read to me or something, she exclaimed petulantly. It's awfully dull here today. I'll read to you with pleasure, I replied, and began at the point where I had found my bookmark. 
The difficulty of leading with transformation so many-sided as those which all existences have undergone or undergoing is such as to make a complete and deductive interpretation almost hopeless. So to grasp the total process of redistribution of matter and motion as to see simultaneously its several necessary results in their actual independence is scarcely possible. There is, however, a mode of rendering the process as a whole tolerably comprehensible. Though the genesis of rearrangement of every evolving aggregate is in itself one, it- John! interrupted my wife. I wish you would stop reading that nonsense and see who that is coming up the lane. I closed my book with a sigh. I had never been able to interest my wife in the study of philosophy, even when presented in the simplest and most lucid form. Someone was coming up the lane, at least a huge faded cotton umbrella was making progress toward the house, and beneath it a pair of nether extremities and trousers was discernible. Any doubt in my mind as to whose they were was soon resolved when Julius reached the steps and, putting the umbrella down, got a good dash of the rain as he stepped up onto the porch. "'Why in the world, Julius?' I asked. "'Didn't you keep the umbrella up until you got under cover?' "'Bad luck, sir, to raise an umbrella in the house. And whilst I don't know whether it's bad luck to carry one into the piazza or not, I like to be on the safe side. I didn't suppose you and young missus would be gone driving today, but being as it's my part to take you if you do's, I allow I'd report for duty and let you say whether you wants to go or not. I'm glad you came here, Julius, I responded. We don't want to go driving, of course, in the rain, but we should like to consult you on another matter. I'm thinking of taking in a piece of new ground. What do you imagine it would cost to have that neck of the woods down by the swamp cleared up? The old man's countenance assumed an expression of unwanted seriousness, and he shook his head doubtfully. I don't know about that, sir. It might cost more, but even though it costs less, it's for money is concerned. I ain't denying you could clear up that track for a few hundred or a couple hundred dollars, but if you wants to clear it up, but if it was my track, I wouldn't disturb it. No, sir, I wouldn't. Shows you bone, I wouldn't. But why not, I asked. It ain't fitting for grapes, for no ground never is. I know it, but it ain't no healthy for cotton, cause it's top low. Perhaps so, but it'll raise splendid corn. I don't know, rejoined Julius deprecatorily. It's so near the swamp that the coons will eat up all the corn. I think I'll risk it, I answered. Well, sir, said Julius, I wishes you much joy your job. If you has bad luck or sickness or trouble of any kind, don't blame me. You can't say old Julius didn't warn you. Warn him of what, Uncle Julius? asked my wife. Of the bad luck what folks followed was disturbed the tracks over there. They snakes and scorpions in them woods. Even if you manages to escape them poison animals, you're bound to have a hank to settle with, if you don't have two. Who's haunt? my wife demanded, with growing interest. The gray wolf's haint, some folks call it, but I knows better. Tell us about it, Uncle Julius, said my wife. A story would be a godsend today. It was not difficult to induce the old man to tell a story, if he were in a reminiscent mood. Of the tales of the old slavery days, he seemed indeed to possess an exhaustless store, some weirdly grotesque, some broadly humorous, some bearing the stamp of truth, faint, but perhaps still discernible. Others palpable invitations, whether his own or not, we never knew, though his fancy doubtless embellished them. But even the wildest was not without an element of pathos. The tragedy, it might be, of the story itself, the shadow, never absent, of slavery and ignorance, the sadness always, of life as seen by the fading light of an old man's memory. Way back yonder before the war, began Julius, old Mars Dougal McAdoo used to own a nigger back then named Dan. 
Dan was big and strong and hearty and peaceable and good-natured most of the time, but dangerous to aggravate. He had always done his task and never had no trouble with the white folks, but woe be unto the nigga that thought he could fool with Dan, for he was most sure to get a good lemon. As soon as everybody found Dan out, they didn't many of them disturb him. The one that did would have wished he hadn't, if he had lived long enough to do any wishing. It all happened this way. There was a conjure man who lived over on the other side of Levington Road. He had been the only conjure doctor in the neighborhood for low many of these years. Two old Aunt Peggy sought up at the business down by Willington Road. This conjure man had a son who would live with him, and it was this here son that got mixed up with Dan and all about a woman. There was a gal on the plantation named Mahaly. She was a monstrous lackey lady, tall and supple, wild big eyes, eating a small foot, a lively tongue, and when Dan took to going with her, everybody allowed that they was well matched, and none of the other nigger men on the plantation danced to go near her, for they was all feared of Dan. Now it happened that this here conjure man, son, was going along the road one day, when who should come past but Molly. In the minute this man saw eyes on Mally, he allowed he was going to have her for herself. He come up beside her and meant to talk to her, but she didn't pay no attention to him, for she was studying by Dan, and she didn't lack this nigga's fool's know-how. So when she got to where she was going, this here man was no farther along than he was when he started. Because after he made up his mind for to get Mally, he meant to choir around and soon found out all about Dan and what dangerous nigga he was. But this man allowed his daddy was a conjure man. And so he come all out right in the end. And he kept right on after Mahali. Meanwhile, Dan's master said that they could get married if they want to. And so Dan and Mahali had took up with one another and was living in the cabin by themselves. And they was wrapped up in one another. But this here conjure man's son didn't appear to mind Dan's taking up with Mahali. And he kept on hanging around the same. Till finally, one day Mahali says to Dan, says she... I wish you'd do something to stop that free nigga man from following me around. I don't lack him no how, and I ain't got no time for the waste with no man but you. Because Dan got mad when he heard about this man pestering Mahali. And the next night, when he see this nigga coming down the road, he up and asked him what he mean by hanging around his woman. The man didn't respond to suit Dan. One thing led to another. Tabamba, this conjure man's son, pulled out a knife and started to stick it in Dan. But before he could get it draw good, Dan hauled off and hit him in the head so hard he never got up. Dan allowed him to come after a while and go long on about his business, so he went off and left him laying there on the ground. The next morning, the man was found dead. There was a great miration about it, but Dan didn't say nothing. And none of the other niggas seemed to have seed to fight, so they didn't want to tell who done the killing. And being that they was a free nigger, and they didn't want no white folks specially interested, they wanted nothing to do about it. And the conjure man came and took his son and carried him in and buried him. Now Danny meant to kill this nigger, and while he done know the man got no more than he deserved, Dan meant to worry more or less. For he knowed this man's daddy would work his roots and probably find out who killed his son, and make all the trouble for him he could. And Dan kept on studying about this until he got so he did no hardly past eat or drink for fear because this conjure man had poisoned his vittles or the water. Finally, he allowed him to go see Aunt Peggy, the new conjure woman who would move down the Willington Road and ask her for something to protect him from this conjure man. So he took her a pack of taters and went down to her cabin one night. Aunt Peggy heard his tale and then says she, 
that conjure man is no more than twice as old as I am, and he can make the monstrous, powerful goofer. What you need is a life charm, and I'll make you one tomorrow. But the only thing would you do any good, you leave me a couple of hairs from your head and fetch me a pig tomorrow night for roast. And when you come, I'll have a charm ready for you. So Dan went down to Aunt Peggy's the next night with a young shoat, and Aunt Peggy gave him the charm. She had tucked the hairs Dan had left with her and a piece of her red flannel and some roots and some yards, and she had put them in a little bag made out in coonskin. You take this charm, she says, and put it in her bottle in a tin box and bury it deep under the root of a live oak tree. And as long as it stays safe and sound, there ain't no poison can poison you. There ain't no rattlesnake can bite you. There ain't no scorpion can sting you. This here conjure man might do one thing or another to you, but he can't kill you. So you don't need to be scared, but go on about your business and don't bother your mind. So Dan went down by the river, and way up on the bank, he buried the charm under the root of a live oak tree and covered it up to stomp dirt down and scatter leaves over the spot and then went home with his mind easy. Sure enough, this conjure man worked his roots just as Dan suspected he would and soon learned who killed his son. And because he made up his mind for to get even with Dan, so he sent a rattlesnake for it to sting him. But the rattlesnake saved the nigga's heel was so hard he couldn't get a sting in. Then he sent a jaybird for to put poison on Dan's vittles, but the poison didn't work. Then the conjure man allowed he would double Dan all up with rheumatism, so he couldn't get his hand up to his mouth to eat and would have to starve to death. But Dan went toward Aunt Peggy, and she gave him ointment to cure rheumatism. Then the conjure man allowed he bun Dan up with a fever, but Aunt Peggy told him how to make some yard tea for that. Nothing this man tried would kill Dan, so finally the conjure man allowed Dan must have a life charm. Now this here jaybird the conjure man had was a monster smart creature. In fact, the niggas allowed he was the old devil himself, just sitting around waiting to carry this old man away when he retching the end of his rope. The conjure man sent this jaybird for to watch Dan and find out where he kept his charm. The jaybird hung around Dan for a week or so, and one day he see Dan go by the river and look at the live oak tree. And then the jaybird went back to his master, told him he spec the nigga kept a life charm under that tree. So the conjure man meant by going up Dan's cabin every night and taking Dan out in his sleep and riding him around the roads and fields over around the ground. In the morning, Dan would be tired because he, he hadn't been to sleep. This kind of thing kept up for a week or so, and Dan has made up his mind for it to go to Aunt Peggy's again, when who she come across going along the road one day towards the sun, but this here conjure man. Dan felt kinder at first, but then he remembered about his life charm, which he had been to her to see for a week or so, and a lie was safe under the live oak tree. And he held his head up long, just like he didn't care nothing about this man no more than any other nigga. When he got up close to the conjure man, this conjure man says, says he, Hold it, Br'er Dan. I hope you well. When Dan see this conjure man was in good humor and didn't appear to bear him no malice, Dan allowed maybe the conjure man had found out who killed his son. So he was determined for it to let on lack that he didn't know nothing. So he says, Howdy, Uncle Jude. This old conjure man's name was Jude. I was pretty well, thank you. How's you feeling this morning? I was feeling as well as old nigga could, felt what he only lost his only son and his main penance in his old age. But then my son was a bad boy, says he, and I couldn't expect nothing else. 
I tried to learn him to rear his ways and make him go to church and prayer meeting, but it won't no use. I don't know who killed him, and I don't want to know, for I'd be most sure to find out that my boy had started to fuss. If I'd had a son like you, Brad Dan, I'd have been a proud nigga. Oh, yes, I would. Shows you born. But you ain't looking as well as you ought to, Briar Dan. There's something the matter with you. And what's more, I suspect you don't know what it is. Now this here Ken talk naturally throw Dan off his guard. And first thing he knowed, he was talking to this conjure man like he was one of his best friends. He told him all about not feeling well in the morning and asked him if he could figure out what was the matter with him. Yes, says the conjure man. There is a witch to be riding you night long. I can see the marks of your bridle in your mouth. And I'll just bet your back is raw where she's been beating you. Yes, spawned Dan, so it is. I hadn't noticed it before, but it does feel just like the hide had been took off of. And your thighs is raw where the spurs been driving in you, says the conjure man. You can't see the raw spots, but you can feel them. Oh, yes, louse Dan. Days does powerful hurt bad. And what's more, says the conjure man, coming up close to Dan and whispering in his ear, I knows who it is been riding you. Who is it, asked Dan. Tell me who it is. It's old nigger woman down the Rockfish Creek. She had a pet rabbit, and you catch him one day, and she been squaring up with you ever since. But you better stop her, or else you be rid to death in a month or so. No, says Dan, she can't kill me, show. I don't know how that is, said the conjure man, but she can make your life mighty miserable. If I was in your place, I'd stop her right off. But how's I gonna stop her, asked Dan. I don't know nothing about stopping witches. Look here, Dan, says the other. You is a good young man. I likes you monstrous as well. Fact, I feels like some of these days I might ought to buy up your farm from your master if I could ever make money enough to at my business these hard times and dop you for my son. I likes you so well that I'm going to help you get rid of this her witch for good and all. For just as long as she lives, you sure is to have trouble, and trouble and more trouble. You is the best friend I got, Uncle Jube, says Dan. And I remember your kindness till my dying day. Tell me how I can get rid of this here old witch who's been riding me so hard. In the first place, said the conjure man, this old witch never comes down her own shape. But every night, 10 o'clock, she turns herself into a black cat. And she runs down to your cabin and bridles you and mounts you and drives you through the chimney and rides you over to the roughest places she can find. All you got to do is to set for her in the bushes side your cabin and hit her in the head with a rock or a lighter knot when she goes to pass. But, says Dan, how can I see in the dark? And supposing I hits at her and I misses. Supposing I does wound her and she gets away. What's she going to do to me then? I's done studied about all them things, says the conjure man. And it appears to me that the best plan for you to follow is to let me turn you to some creature what can see in the dark and what can run as fast as a cat what can bite and bite for to kill and then you don't have to have no trouble after getting the job done i don't know what you'd like that or no but that sure is the way i don't care spawn dan i'd just as like be anything for an hour or so if i can kill that old witch you could do just what you want to mister all right then says the conjure man you come down to my cabin at half past nine tonight and i'll fix you up now this conjure man when he had got through talking with Dan, kept on down the road alongside the plantation till he met Mahali coming from work just after sundown. Howdy do, ma'am, says he. Is your name Sis Mahali, what the belongs to Master Dougal Madu? Yes, Spawn Mahali, that's my name, and I belongs to Mars Dougal. 
Well, said your husband, Dan, was down there by my cabin this evening. And he got bit by a spider or something, and his foot is swollen up so he can't walk. And he asked me for to find you to fetch down here someone to help him home. Because Mahalia wanted to see what had happened to Dan, and so she started down the road with the conjure man. As soon as he got into his cabin, he shut the door and sprinkled some goofy mixture on her and turned her into a black cat. Then he took her and put her in a barrel and put a bowl on the barrel and then a rock on the bowl and left her there till he got good and ready for it to use her. Long about half past nine o'clock, Dan came down to the conjure man's cap. It was a warm night and the door was standing open. The conjure man invited Dan to come in and pass time or day with him. As soon as Dan commenced talking, he heard the cat meowing and scratching and going at a terrible rate. What's all that fuss about? asked Dan. Oh, that ain't nothing but my old gray tomcat, says the conjure man. I has to shut him up sometimes for to keep him in nights, and cause he don't like it. Now, says the conjure man, let me tell you just what you got to do. When you catches this witch, you must take her right by the throat and bite her right through the neck. Be sure your teeth goes through the first bite, and then you won't never be bothered no more by that witch. And when you get done, come back here, and I'll turn you to yourself again so you can go home and get your nice rest. Then the conjure man gave Dan something nice to drink out of a new gold. In about a minute, Dan found himself turned into a gray wolf. And as soon as he felt all four of his new feet on the ground, he started off as fast as he could for his own cabin so he could be sure to be there in time enough to catch the witch and put an end to her carrying zone. As soon as Dan was good, the conjure man took the rock off the bowl and the bowl off the barrel and out let Mahali and started for her to go home. Just like a cat or a woman or anybody else would do was in trouble. It wasn't many minutes before she was going up the path to her own door. Meanwhile, when Dan had reached the cabin, he had hid himself in a bunch of jimson weeds in the yard. He hadn't waited for long before he see the black cat run up the path towards the door. Just as soon as she get close to him, he leapt out and catch her by the throat and got a grip on her, just like the conjure man had told him to do. And lo and behold, and no sooner than the blood commenced to flow, that Dan see the black cat turn back into Mahali, and Dan see that he had killed his own wife. And whilst her breath was gone, she called out, Oh Dan, oh my husband, come help me. Come help me, save me from this wolf that's killing me. When Poe Dan started towards her, any man naturally would. It just made her holler worse and worse, for she didn't notice her wolf was her Dan. And Dan just tried to hide in the weeds and grit his teeth and hold himself till she passed out in her misery, calling for Dan till at last wondering why he didn't come to help her. And Dan loud to herself, he'd rather be killed a dozen times and to have done what he done to Mahali. Dan was mighty distracted, but when Mahali was dead and he got his mind straightened out a little, it did take him then a little more than a minute for to see through all the conjure man's lies and how the conjure man had fooled him and made him kill Mahali for to get even with him for killing his son. He kept getting madder and madder, and Mahali had much more than drawn her last breath before he started back to the conjure man's cabin as fast as he could run. When he got there, the door was standing open, a lighter knot was flickering on the hearth, and the old conjure man was sitting there nodding in the corner. Dan leapt in the door and jumped for the man's throat and got the same grip on him what did the conjure man told him about a half hour before. It was hard work this time, for the old man's neck was monstrous tough and stringy, but Dan held on long enough for to be sure the job was done right. And even then, he didn't hold on long enough, for when he turned the conjure man loose and he fell over on the floor, the conjure man rolled his eyes at Dan and says, Eyes even with you, Briar Dan, and you even with me. You killed my son and I killed your woman. 
and I don't want no more than what's fair about this thing. If you'll reach up with your paw and take down that gold hanging on that peg over on the chimney, take a sip of that mixture, it'll turn you back to a nigga again, and I can die more satisfied than if I left you like he is. Then they believe for a minute that a man would lie with his last breath, and cause he seemed the sense of getting turned back before the conjure man died, so he dumb on a chair as rich as far as he could and took a sip of the mixture. And as soon as he'd done that, the conjure man laughed his last laugh and gasped out with his last gasp. Uh-oh, I reckon I square with you now for killing me too. For that goof all you has done fixed. And sought now for good. And all the conjure in the world won't never take it off. Wolf you is and wolf you stays all the rest of your bone days. Bardan couldn't do nothing. He jumped on over that chimney and got down the golds and the bottles and the other conjurefixings and tried them all on himself, but they didn't do no good. Then he run down to old Aunt Peggy, and she didn't know the wolf language and couldn't have took off this other goofer anyhow, even if she did have understood what Dan was saying. So poor Dan was obliged to be a wolf for all the rest of his bone days. They found Mahali down by her own cabin next morning. Everybody made a great admiration about how she'd been killed. Niggas allowed a wolf to bite her. The white folks says, no, there ain't been no wolves around here for 10 years or more. And they didn't know what to make of it. And when they couldn't find Dan nowhere, they allowed he crawled up with Mahali and killed her and run away. They didn't know what to make of that. For Dan and Mahali was the most loving couple on the plantation. They put the dogs on Dan's scent and tracked him down to old Junk's cabin and found the old man dead. And they didn't know what to make of that. And then Dan sent Gun out, and they didn't know what to make of that either. Mars Dougal took on a heap about losing two of his best hands in one day, and old Miss Loud it was a judgment on him for something he'd done. But that fall the crops was monstrous big. So Mars Dougal say the Lord tempered the wind to show him wrong and to make up for him for what he lost. They buried Mahalia down in that piece there on that ground you talking about clearing up. As for Poe Dan, he did never find nowhere else to go, so he stayed around Mahali's grave when he wasn't out in there yonder woods getting something to eat. And sometimes when night would come, the niggas used to hear him howling and howling down there, just fitting to break his head. And then some more of them said they see Mahali's haint down there a bunch of times, colluding with this here great wolf. And even now, 50 years since, long after old Dan had died dried up in the woods, his haint in Mahalis hangs around a piece low ground, and everybody what goes about there has some bad luck or another, for haints don't lack to be disturbed on their own stomping ground. The air had darkened while the old man related his harrowing tale. The rising wind whistled above the eave, slammed the loose window shutters, and still increasing, drove the rain in fiercer gusts into the piazza. As Julius finished his story and we rose to seek shelter within the doors, the blast caught the angle of some chimney or gable in the rear of the house and bore to ours a long, wailing note, an epitome, as it were, of remorse and hopelessness. That's just like Paul Dan used to howl, observed Julius as he reached for his umbrella. And what I've been telling you is the reason I don't like to see that neck of the woods cleared up. Cause it belongs to you and a man can choose to do with his own. But if you get rheumatism or fever or auger, or you get snake bit, poison with some herb or another, or if a tree falls on you, or a haint runs you and makes you get distracted in your own mind, like some folks I know's went to fooling around that piece of land, you can't say I never warned you, sir, and show you what you ought to might look for, be sure to find. When I cleared up the land in question, which was not until the following year, I recalled the story Julius had told us, and looked in vain for a sunken grave or perhaps few weather-bleached bones of some denizen of the forest. I cannot say, of course, that someone had not been buried there, but if so, the hand of time had long since removed any evidence of the fact. 
If some lone wolf, the last of his pack, had once made his den there, his bones had long since crumbled into dust and gone to fertilize the rank vegetation that formed the undergrowth of this wild spot. I did find, however, a bee tree in the woods, with an ample cavity in its trunk, and an opening through which convenient access could be had to the stores of honey within. I have reason to believe that ever since I had bought the place, and for many years before, Julius had been getting honey from this tree. The gray wolf's haint had doubtless proved useful in keeping off two inquisitive people who might have interfered with his monopoly. Thanks for tuning in this week. And thank you to our newest patrons, Linnea and loop de doo Because of you, more black horror will be brought into the light. There are lots of ways that you too can support Nightlight. You can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash nightlightpod or make a one-time donation at paypal.me slash nightlightpodcast. If you aren't able or aren't quite ready to support the podcast financially, rating us on iTunes is an excellent way to help more listeners find us. Sharing the podcast on social media and with your friends is always appreciated and something everyone can do. Thanks again for your support. We'll see you next week. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.